Restaurant Unstoppable, episode three, was that he said, remember where the fence is, meaning once you have these boundaries set for whatever your restaurant is, remember what it is that you're there for. Um, don't don't spin off on trends if, unless that's what your restaurant's about. But he was just like, be aware of these boundaries that you have and build up. Don't necessarily build out. Um, the thing that I took from that, this other kid that I worked with in the kitchen, um, by the name of Carl, Carl had a uh, million dollar hands, 10 cent head. That was how Joey defined him. And it was pretty much him, man. Um, he, so we wore all bakers white. Like that was Joey's thing. White pants, white shirt, white apron. Is if, you're, if your station is a mess, if your uniform's a mess, your mind's a mess, service is a mess. And I've just, I've always been about, as far as that goes, to work clean, to have, you know, it's mise en place, man, Aren't everything in its place. It and, you know, sauces of belong on your freaking chef. Failures in bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Mm-hmm. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable, and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's cabbage with a K. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Who loves doing paperwork? No one. Sorcery is an efficient online AP automated solution for the food service industry and restaurants, large and small, are using Sorcery to provide a scalable solution to help them create efficiencies and ultimately grow their business while impacting their bottom line. To learn more, head to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com. And be sure to mention Restaurant Unstoppable to get your first month free. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Mark Jackson. Chef Mark Jackson, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am unstoppable, brother. <laughs> that is what we like to hear. Uh, and a special thank you, a shout out to Ian Bowden for setting this up. Uh, he was a great guest, and I have a feeling you're going to be a great guest too. After doing some research, man, you got some, you got some experience uh, hailing from New York, where he got his start running neighborhood trotteritas, uh, multi-unit corporate restaurants, and a five-star Adirondack Inn. Mark Jacksina relocated to Charlotte with his wife Lauren and two sons Lucas and Ann in 2004. It was there where he opened multi best new restaurant award winners, including Nan and Byron's. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong to say it for me, man. I don't want to butcher it. Halcyon. Halcyon and Lulu. Uh, Mark is now executive chef at Earl's Grocery, an urban provisions larder and cafe serving inspired street food, grab and go dinners in some of the city's tastiest fried chicken. In addition, Mark hosts the online video series Order Fire, where he interviews leading culinarians, multi, or I can't talk, it's too late. I'm used to doing this in the morning. <laughs> uh, mixologists, restaurateurs, purveyors, and farmers.
armors to paint them in a multi-dimensional light. That's a lot going on, dude. I can't wait to dive yeah, right? into the story. Uh, but before we learn more about you, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? For me, it's pretty much all about respect, listening, and push it forward. Respect, listening, and pushing forward. Dive into each of those and why they resonate with you. Well, for me, listening, it's a matter of like the conversation um, that I have with whether it's my customers, my guests, uh, my staff. It's a matter of actually taking the time to hear what they have to say um, and ingest that. So that way I know that um, we're, we're, we're both speaking the same language, mm. whoever the case may be. Uh, respect, man, that just goes down to ingredients. That goes down to people. Um, I think you know the universe is about as far out as your fingertips go. So you know that's that's as much control as I have. So I have to give respect that's out there because who's on the other side has the same is basically the universe looking back at me. If that makes any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And then pushing and, and pushing forward. I mean, it's all about just being fearless. I think that's I think that's one of the 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 hardest things to do and one of the easiest things to do. I love it, man. Uh, so great way to get this thing started. And, and like we start every episode, uh, where did it start with you? When did you know this was going to be your career? Can you bring us to a moment when you kind of committed your life to this? Yeah, I was um, actually a philosophy major in college. Um, I started off <clears throat> as a graphic artist and kind of meandered my way slowly down through my um, um, uh, my curriculum. You know, it's like, the next semester I had psychology and I was like, oh, I'm going to do psychology. Um, and then from psychology, I ended up in a, a philosophy 101 class. And it seemed that I kept reducing everything down. Right. It's kind of like uh, like making demi-gloss. Um, it's just it's the reduction process, getting down deep. And then um, I, I was a couple years into it. And, and within the academia, once you start going, like for me, it was about truth. Right. Um, so we start going and suddenly these little it starts to splinter off in all these little groups. And it, it got to the point where the arguing about what was and what wasn't was getting frustrating. And by that point I had gotten picked up another, I was working three jobs and going to school. My third job was just some part-time work in a kitchen. Um, obviously, I mean, I grew up in the industry, so I was not like I spent a lot of time in it, but I was familiar with it. Um, and I had picked up this job at this little trattoria called Joey's Little Corner Joint, uh, sauce joint, if you will, did Depression-era uh, Italian-American food. And it got down to that by that point for me was, honestly, good steak, bad steak. You couldn't tell me it was not steak. Um, <laughs> and, that was, and that was the moment that I realized that's really what I wanted. I mean, obviously, all the other things within the industry, right? I mean, it's the closest thing, especially, I mean, I was 20 years old, uh, 21 maybe by that point, and – like I was, it was the closest thing to rock and roll. I was really going to get really dive into it. What exactly was it about the industry that you love that drew you into it? Man, it's, you know, it totally feeds, it, it totally feeds my ADD. You know, you, I'm sure every chef says <laughs> that, but I mean, it's, it, it keeps, I mean, it's, it's never dull, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the energy that goes on. Um, it's the interaction with the people. And honestly, I mean, and this is going to be the sappy part. But I loved the idea from like my from the very earliest that I started cooking professionally was this idea of communion, this conversation that I was having with the, with with my food or even somebody else's food, but me cooking it and the person that was out there. Um, that part I think was the one that resonated the deepest, and it's carried with me. I, I was looking back at an article not too long ago. My wife had gone, has been going through like all these write ups and stuff, um, and putting them together in scrapbooks so we don't lose them. And one of my one of my earliest pieces of press, and it was from 90, 1993, and it was at that same restaurant, Joey's, 
Um, and the press came, uh, an interviewer came in and Joey being who he was, he was not a press guy. He never wanted to deal with anybody. We were kind of a, like the big night restaurant. If you've seen that movie. Yeah. Um, so, but like the passion guy, that was, that was us, not the money people. We were just the passion, this little, little hole in a wall joint. Seriously. And it was almost in the middle of the ghetto, but on a Friday night, you know, you'd have a Mercedes out parked next to like somebody's beat up, um, Honda, you know, like 10 year old, uh, civic. So anyways, they came in and Joe was like, I don't want to talk to him. You talk to him. So I sat down and they were, you know, asking these questions. And by the end of the conversation, like the thing that I was talking about, what I loved about that restaurant was this idea of, of, of communing, of community, um, both in sort of the religious sense, but also just in the very sense of sitting down and breaking bread. That very simple. That simple but intimate act. Let's dive into that word communion. Uh, you mentioned uh-huh. it a few times, and I'm not. Do you know the definition of it? Like, can you like define what that word means? Can you get really specific about what? Let's start really talk about that word. Yeah, I'm not gonna. So, I mean, I wouldn't be able to give you the dictionary definition without pulling it like directly up. But the idea of uh, the, the idea of communion in like growing up as a Roman Catholic was this idea: when you take communion, you sort of take this spirit into you. Um, an outside spirit and then not being religious, um, in that sense, like to sit down in communities to be sort of become one with, Mm. I looked up the word I had to, I I really love like really getting literal and pulling apart words because I mean, learn a lot from doing that. And the, the definition of communion is the sharing or exchange of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Dude, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's great when you really, that's why I love defining words. It, they, it, yeah. it makes so much, so much more impact when you do. So when I was reading that, what was going through your mind? It's pretty much what my career, um, I would like it to be defined as eventually. You know what I mean? I think that I've made steps to make that happen. Um, whether, you know, whether it does or doesn't, I guess that the only time tells that one. But, um, I mean, that's exactly what it's like to sit down and break bread. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's like to like, when you're doing that, the, the conversation, the intimacy that happens, I mean, when you look at art or food, music, all these things, I mean, even mathematics is really nothing more than just this sort of expression of, am I here? You know, and it's all the chitter chatter that goes on. It's really what it is. is You're just like, you listen to birds talk, right? And it's the same thing. The cooking food is kind of that same thing. And it's, it, I'm being, I'm going to oversimplify here, uh, because I have like this, I I can over romanticize if, if I'm not cautious, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm trying not to be too wordy on it. Um, but that's for me the, this this constant um, like throwing out of ideas, concepts, words, or whatever. It's it's really nothing more than just kind of like playing out into the void. And I don't mean to sound nihilistic at all. That's not the point. Um, I don't know if, that, if I'm making sense. I'm trying to. No, yeah. I'm trying to. I'm trying to thread it all together. There's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of ground to cover. We could do a whole podcast just on this. I think you painted a good picture. So let's kind of get Ariel again. Bring it back mm-hmm. up in. Uh, you're at Joey's this trotteria. Uh, mm-hmm. What were the mm-hmm. biggest lessons you learned from this experience uh, before so, you moved on to where, where you moved to next? I'll tell you. Um, all right. So I've learned two lessons there. The first one, um, Joey, who's the owner. So he's this big, imposing guy. Um, uh, Northern Italian by uh, by heritage looked Irish about six foot four. So his looked like me. He's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but, but yeah. I mean, I don't know how tall you are on my screen. You're, you know, I'm not four six four, tall. but um, I, my last name is Cacciatore, and I have a gigantic. Oh, the, yeah, 
so and exactly. I mean, so I mean, he was kind of a, a bit elk. I mean, he had Baker's hands, just these big, strong hands. Um, and he was kind of clairvoyant without sounding kooky, but um, meaning he really, he really kind of was in tune to something. Um, you know, I, I'm not quite sure how to paint the picture properly, but let's just say that he was definitely, uh, he was definitely tapped into something. And uh, he had pointed out at one point, because I was like, you know, this is what it's all about, this neighborhood joint. And he had said, he goes, you're going to do, you're going to be white tablecloth. I could see you doing white tablecloth. Um, and Joey was always, but the, the thing that I took from him was that he said, remember where the fence is. Meaning, once you have these boundaries set for whatever your restaurant is, remember what it is that you're there for. Um, don't, don't spin off on trends. If, unless that's what your restaurant's about. But he was just like, be aware of these boundaries that you have and build up. Don't necessarily build out. Um, the thing that I took from that, this other kid that I worked with in the kitchen, um, my name of Carl, Carl had a million dollar hands, 10 cent head. That was how Joey <laughs> defined it. But it was pretty much him, man. Um, he, so we wore all Baker's white. Like that was Joey's thing. White pants, white shirt, white aprons. And mind you, this is an Italian restaurant, a sauce joint. Jeez. So, you know, there's 40 gallons of Madonnade cooking on one. There's ribs and riggies on another and, modern, and marinara on the third one. I said that and gravy. And it was just like, I mean, tomato upon tomato upon tomato. Everything went into a saute pan. So you can imagine mm-hmm. how easy it would be to wreck your clothes, right? Or your uniform. And Carl was just constantly like, he was a wiper, like on his apron. And just when I looked, <laughs> I walked in one day and I took one look at him. I'm like, I'm never going to be that guy. I'm never, ever going to be that guy. And that was the thing that I took out of there. And, and it's still to this day, I mean, even my young cooks now will tell you, the one thing that I would say to them is if, if your station is a mess, if your uniform's a mess, your mind's a mess, service is a mess. And I've just, I've always been about, as far as that goes, to work clean, to have, you know, it's mise en place, man, everything yep. in its place. And, awesome. you know, sauces belong on your freaking chef coat. So just the, the respect, I guess you bring it back to the respect, mm-hmm. respecting the little things, respecting yeah. your, your workstation and the whole idea of just, uh, remember what drives you remember what what it is about this industry that you, you love and don't lose sight of that because mm-hmm. you're gonna need it man. you're gonna need it there's gonna be some tough days where uh you're gonna you need, know that yeah you're gonna need that re- that reminder uh beautiful yeah. stuff so okay what was the i don't want to spend too much time on the early days because i realize yeah, you've gone through a lot opening your own places yeah. winning, winning great awards but really hone into some of the maybe one or two more big lessons coming up uh getting mentored fine-tuning your skills and your knowledge yeah, so like when I pull, so when I pulled up steaks from that place, um, one of the, and the other thing that I took from there, like Joey was always good about, um, like he was a he was a whole animal guy before a whole animal existed, um, or you know that it had that term, I should say. Um, so we cooked a lot of the ugly parts, as like we did tripe every Sunday. We would do tongue. Um, we'd work with liver, um, heart once in a while, and that's one thing I've brought heart pretty much wherever I've gone. And Joey was just, again, it gets down to this respect thing. When I left there, um, when I first left there, I moved off to this other similar restaurant. And it was one that had been around for a while. It's what I'd call like a scotch and sirloin. So, you know, lawyers and judges would show up there uh, on Friday night with their wives and Saturday night with their girlfriends. Um, You know, and then uh, Sundays, they would show up for football with their their friends. And it was kind of an old older restaurant had been around for about 20 years. I came in and freshened it up. And that was sort of where I caught the bug for opening restaurants was just retooling that place. Um, and I realized how like 
how much I enjoyed that rush. Um, and I think that sort of set my trajectory to leave to leave New York to go to Charlotte. In the interim, I had worked a couple other spots, and then I did the Alexander Hamilton Inn. Um, and that was my first personal like job into what I would consider you know fine dining uh, beard style cuisine. I had worked my uncle's restaurants that I worked as a kid were fine dining. But as far as me working, working my way up, earning my bones, and that job was, you know, everybody in there was somebody else's executive chef. Um, everybody, all the servers were somebody else's maitre d'. This was uh, a restaurant of type A personalities, and it ran like a bunch of type A personalities and A being for asshole as well. Um, I'm still friends with a lot of those, let's, with most of those people. Let's tap the brakes here before uh, we'll come sure. back to this. Uh, what was the name of that restaurant? So I can just make a note. That one was the Alexander Hamilton Inn, oh, and that's in Clinton, New York. Got it. Okay, um, so let's go back to retooling that. You said you mm-hmm. retooled that restaurant. What was that restaurant? One more time. That was so. This place was called Cafe Del Bono, and uh, it was owned by uh, two brothers, and then eventually just one brother. And they they opened that restaurant up. Man, he was twenty twenty one when he had opened it. And they were open for 18 years when I when I got in there. So they've been around for a while. Um, so when you say retooling, I'm assuming that you went in there, you looked at a situation and went, okay, uh, this needs work. You kind of set them straight, maybe change some things. Is that what you meant by retooling? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, like like food cost wasn't a conversation that was okay. being had. Um, you know, and they, they had this – his idea was is like – well, you know, if, if six scallops are what the recipe calls for, but if I put 10 scallops on the plate, it looks better. And he would put <laughs> them out like that. And I'm like, dude, like I'm showing him basic math, like yeah. food skills. You know what I mean? Um, we would sit downstairs and have like conversations about numbers. And it was funny that his approach to numbers were different than anybody else's that I've ever seen. And not necessarily in the best way, but I got to say he's been a successful business person and still is. Um probably uh, in spite of himself. So coming into that situation, the first thing, mm-hmm. one of the things you noticed was food costs. How else, I mean, looking at that situation where it was be- before you got there and how mm-hmm. you improved it, what were some of the things you observed and how did you change them aside from food costs? Well, I mean, just basic uh, kitchen systems, right? I mean, there was no recipe book. There was no methods or procedures uh, written down for anybody. So everybody was just, you know, whoever was working was doing it their way. Um, and that was a constant comment. This was before the internet, um, or right at the birth of it even, but you know, that was a constant comment. It was like, well, well who's working tonight? Like people would want to know who was cook- cooking in the kitchen, whether they'd go for dinner or not. Because if they went on Thursday, you know, Avon or whoever might be in the kitchen working, they'd be like, okay, great. And then if they went out on Monday, uh, uh, Paul might be in the kitchen working and like, not so good. Mm. Um, it was just inconsistency. Um, you know, and that's, I mean, that's a, that's an issue in every restaurant, right? Yeah. Or and something you strive for. What I'm curious about, because I'm sure Mm -hmm. this is a situation that people are going to run into. It's a likely situation where you get hired on board a great team, but they don't have some things in place. How do you get onboarded and realize that things could be better? And how do you make those changes? How do you go about implementing those procedures? What's the process for implementing procedures? For, for me, the first thing to do is to go in there and like really just dig into everything and, you know, lead by example. Um, first, the first step is always to clean, you know, and that's because I mean, it doesn't matter how clean a kitchen is. You walk into a kitchen and take it over. It's going to be messy to you and your and, and, and the best way to get the attention, the respect of any kitchen that's already existing 
is to go in and roll up your sleeves, right? Do the shit job. The fryer hasn't been detailed properly in a year. Detail it. Um, and show somebody how you expect to have it done because the second time it shouldn't be you. So don't go in bitching about the situation, what needs to be done. Just do the work. Treat it like you want uh, yeah. it, and that's the best way to get respect. Yeah, uh, ownership is always it. Effective leadership is owning it, you know? And it's, I think, sitting there and, like, walking into it and going like, oh, this place is fucking horrible. Who the fuck was the slob that was in there before? Yep. That could be somebody's best friend. Yep. So, uh, so already you, you make lost. friends. <laughs> no, nah, man, you lost the staff, yep. you know? And somebody might, and if somebody's got, and, you know, when I, when I got in there, that was the first thing they're like, oh, the last guy that was in here was a, you know, he's a total asshole. He was out back smoking all the time. He wouldn't do shit. And I'm like, well, I'm here now. So like, you know, this is what we're going to do. Let's just, let's grab the bootstraps, pull them up. Let's go. Mm. You know, this is what, this is what I want to do. I don't want to waste time talking. I really don't want to waste time talking smack about people. Um, and I, you know, and I think just, I honestly, I think disparaging any, any, anybody is usually the worst thing that you can do. Yeah. Number one, that's somebody's livelihood. And it, and Honestly, what I think about it or what I say about it won't change their situation, but I don't want to negati- negatively impact it. Awesome. Awesome. Great stuff so far. I- I'm really curious, though, um, on the whole pro. Like you said that you implemented procedures. Was mm-hmm. there a way that you went? Did you have a process for implementing procedures? How did you document these things and why is that so important? So, well, I mean, if I'm understanding your question properly, so, I mean, the first thing I, you know, you go in and you observe, make yep. notes. Yeah. Um, that's at least one shift I like to, in a situation like that, I like to do at least three to four shifts um, at different points. I want to see lunch. I want to see dinner. I want to see a whole day. Um, and then I might go back and revisit something else. Um, and I, and during those things, you know, there might be, I might decide to observe lunch and then cook dinner. I might cook lunch and observe dinner. Or did I say that? Um, no, so you know what I mean? It's it's not a matter of walking in like, Hey, I'm going to be here for two hours with a pencil and a, and a clipboard. It's just, I want to step back and sort of see what's going on. Um, but did you actually build out procedures? Did you go through and actually say, this is the way to do it? Uh, this is the process. Yeah. I mean, I presented it. And of course, you know, when it got down to numbers, that was on like, all I could do with Eric in that situation was give him what I saw, have the conversation with them. But ultimately, you know, it was his place his pen, his checkbook. Okay. So if he decided that he didn't want to, he didn't want to waste an hour hunting down better prices on dairy or talking to a fishmonger or reaching out to the produce people to go, Hey, you know, I'm buying this. What if I say I'm going to buy it from you and only you, what price can you give me? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to spend all the time mm-hmm. talking about what was, what wasn't being done right. Cause you did say, you know, despite the things that he was struggling with or he could, he could have been doing better he is still running a very successful business. So what do you think it is about that operation that has made it successful real quick before we move on? Well, from the, I mean, it's, it's always been about food and service there. They are their hospitality and it's not, it's not an upper echelon restaurant, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not a running, it's not a grub joint by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and their, their service was impeccable. That was one thing, you know, you walk in and that was the rule, but it didn't matter who you were as far as the restaurant was, if you happen to be in an area uh, like, say, the dishwasher happened to be at the far end of the bar, which was right near the front door, and he was grabbing uh, glasses or laying down glasses for the bartender and somebody walked in the door, he would have to say, you know, welcome to Cafe Del Bono. And then whatever the case may be, either I'll be right with you or they'll be right with you, whatever. Same thing. If somebody's leaving, never let anybody walk out without acknowledging that they had been in your place. Make sure that they had a great experience. And if they hadn't, immediately fix it. 
Awesome. That's a great lesson right there. I mean, it, the, the, the story's not over until they leave. So make sure you write that end of the story. Uh, and you, you make your right, uh, before yeah. they get out the door. Um, cool. All right. Awesome. Good lessons there. You want to add something? Well, I would say the one thing I picked for Eric, and it probably took me a little while to implement it, because mind you, I mean, at this point, I'm still mid-20s, and people would come up to Eric all the time. Like, we'd get done with work, and we'd get out um, get out on the floor. Um, Eric would have a beer. I'd be finishing up my things, go to use the phone, because it's landlines. And uh, people would come up to Eric, and I'm like, oh, you know what you should do? And they'd tell him all this stuff, and he would just sit there and kind of rub his hands and smile and nod his head. That's a good idea. And they leave. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you say it's a great idea? It's a horrible idea. And he goes, I, I'm not going to do it. But why would I go? Why would I tell him I'm not going to do it? What does it matter? Yeah. You know, yep. and I really and, and the thing was, is what I picked up from that later on down the road, I learned to implement it myself. It, all's, all's most customers need is acknowledgement. Mm. Awesome. Great lesson right there. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. uh, what did you learn from working with a bunch of type A personalities? That's, I think there's probably a lesson there. Oh, well, that's at the other place. <laughs> that, yeah, that was, that yep. was at the Alexander Hamilton. Yep. But man, from them, I, I, they really like that place taught me how to really push myself, I think, harder than anybody else. And it was one of those rare opportunities when you're on that kind of an A team where you've got to kind of sink or swim. So you have to find your niche. You have to learn how to be great at it real quick. And you have to be able to back it up. I mean, let's face it. Anytime you move up in this industry, the first part of any movement is bullshit. The second part is follow through. And all that, all of it requires confidence in yourself and in your peers. That right there, what you just shared with us is what I believe is the secret to, to success in this industry is find your niche, make sure you're good at it. I feel like mm-hmm. you can get a lot further in this industry finding like one thing and being the best at it than being okay at a bunch of stuff. Um, I agree. Some, some people disagree. Some people think you need to be really good at a bunch of stuff. I think the way to go is to be good at one thing and partner with other people who are strong where you're weak. Uh, but Eric, don't, don't you think though that those people that say you got to be good at all, a lot of things, even they have one thing that they gravitate towards. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you got to be, the, the industry is getting super competitive right now. You need to be really <laughs> fucking damn good at a lot of things to try to do yeah. yourself. So focus on I one concur. thing. Yeah. And just and crush it and own it and create a reputation for yourself and just and that will be your ticket that will open doors for you yeah i can't imagine like being a young cook now and trying to uh like sort of break through the chatter it was uh, i think with you know instagram and facebook and social media all the things that go with social media it's i mean it's difficult to 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 really break break through the noise and have a reputation that's going to carry you Mm, awesome and uh, i'm curious um how did you discover your niche? Like talk, talk us through that process of actually how do you recognize your niche and then how do you own it? Well, so uh, initially, you know, like my niche was saute was, was working as saucier. Um, I loved all the things about it. I loved having, you know, excuse me, 12 pans going and each one having its own little thing going on. You know, it, it, like I said, it sort of feeds that. And I'm going to put in parentheses cause I'm not like, I'm not, um, diagnosis having ADD. It's just that chef thing, right? Where it's like everything you see, you know, it's, it's having the, the, uh, 30,000 foot view of everything around you and everything is interesting. Everything is hyper-focused. Um, and being on saute for me anyways, was, was exactly like that. It was having the octopus was playing the piano. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, that was sort of where my niece started. And of course, 
with being a saucier, now you're responsible for stocks. And if you're responsible for stocks and you're you ultimately are responsible for butchering. And those have always been sort of the things that I gravitate to most is, you know, I, I mean, I love I love having my hands into a whole carcass, not not in any way that I get some kind of like, you know, I don't I don't get my rocks off with a dead animal in that <laughs> sense. Like, you know, I'm not Dexter. It's not that um, it's not that kind of podcast, guys. Calm no, down. no, <laughs> it's I, I just, you know, I mean, there's there's such an elegant design to all the living things. And it's hard. I mean, for the naked eye, it's hard to see that mm. on a lot of plants. But to be able to do that on something on a larger scale, that's interesting to me. Mm. Um, I, 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 I don't know how to explain it, but it's, it's, it, it's perverse and it's joy, if Wait, that so makes any sense. Do you know when you found it and you said, this is it, this is my yeah. niche? Bring us through that I, moment because I feel like a lot of people who, are, who may be listening to this may be saying, like, I don't know what lane I belong in. I don't know what my niche is. Like, when, did you, when did you know? What motion were you feeling? How did you know you found it? I'm sure every person that listens to this podcast that cooks i can't speak to bartenders um, or for them but i can say that a few mixologists and bartenders that i've talked to have stated sort of the same experience being in their station in their kitchen by themselves doing one particular thing for some people it's making pasta right Mm -hmm. um they've got it's quiet man there's Mm -hmm. nobody in there nobody calling chef the phone's not being like it's not hammering for you. You don't have tickets chattering away at you. Um, you know, just all the dis- all the distractions, all the disruptions, all the chaos, and the- it's not there. And you just have whatever that item is you can focus on. And the thing is, is you could be in there making pies, you can be in there making pasta, you could go in there and butcher chickens, and suddenly the chickens are it for you. For me, that was sort of it. I found um, that sense of um like athletes get when they're in the zone mm. when you're you flow. know i think they call it flow you they call it flow a state of yeah, flow yeah. Or, or i mean zone, as, yeah. as a, as a uh, i've been a practicing buddhist for a number of years and i'm not throwing it out there to go look how special i am it's just so i can explain for me why that makes sense it's when you when you're actually in the process in the practice of something that's when you feel it mm-hmm. for me. That's how it, that's for me. That's how I knew that's what I enjoyed. So and getting again, zone, that's sorry. Yeah, keep, go going, ahead. keep going. I was just going to say that, you know, that's why I said it's kind of perverse joy. I mean, obviously there's this, you know, because of this, this, uh, psychology of Buddhism that I subscribe to, I don't want to use the word spirituality religion because it's really not, it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, finding that practice, that thing that you can do where you're really in the moment doing it, cooking is like when you're cooking on the line and like everything is just on the flow, right? Your tickets are coming in and you're like you're on top of it is the same thing as when you're in the kitchen quiet just with you and whatever that whatever that item is that really uh, speaks to you. To me, that's like they're one and the same thing. Yeah, that uh, moment, th- those moments. Are. Yeah, I think it's, you know, realizing that flow, getting in the zone and realizing it like you're almost like you're a Zen place. And the other huge part, I think, of finding your passion is that positive reinforcement from other mm-hmm. people who have noticed that you have found your niche. And then mm-hmm. that they say you are crushing that you're good at that, that that it's it's your it's your self-actualization. This is what I was put on this earth to do. And other people feeding and reinforcing that only makes it stronger and it gives you pride and then it's that pride 
that feeds the passion, right? It's that absolutely keep on showing up. So really pay attention. If there's any lesson, I, I would say, you know, pay attention to when you get into that zone and also pay yeah. attention. If you really want to find your niche, your, your passion, your it factor, whatever it is, listen to what other people say about you. They're going to give you and, hints as to what it is about you that makes mm-hmm. you special. Awesome. Stuff. And that's, the, and that's the key word too. You just said it. Listen, that was mm-hmm. the first part of my mantra yep. is you I got, you it. have to listen. Coming full circle, chef. I dig this. This is awesome. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's move on. I think there's still so much. We're already 33 minutes into this conversation. Holy crap. Sorry. No, you're good, dude. Uh, an hour is not enough, man. I keep on saying it. An hour is not enough to really get to know somebody to get deep. Pulling back yeah. the layers is where the gold is. So I'm cool. Yeah, with I it. mean, we shoot for when we do order fire. I mean, most of my episodes, the actual filming goes for about two to two and a half hours. And we get that down to about 23 minutes. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't, uh, it's, I'm, I'm by myself, man. I wish I had a partner to do my editing. <laughs> my no, we, we, we've got a, we have a multi Emmy award winning editor. Who oh, does this. you lucky bastard. Wait, wait, he does it. But he, and the thing is, it's a passion project. Mm. So he does it for free because he came in and saw it and said, I want to be involved. Oh man. I'm, I'm bad enough getting off topic. We're going to reel it back in. Uh, no, yep, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. All right. So, okay. Uh, where are we? I mean, were there, how many other stops along the way were there before you decided to, or before you started getting your own vision and really started working and living intentionally to do your own thing? So I was, so I left that Del Bonos to go to the end. And then while I was there, the executive chef there, um, Art Langdon, um, had his first child. Well, not he, his wife did. Um, and I watched sort of those moments of, not being able to go for like Sophie's first pictures. Right. Mm. Um, and he's like, Oh, you know, she was getting dressed up before I had to come here. I'm sorry. And is then, this still at the Hamilton? Or this is bad. This is. Yep. Exactly. Okay. This is the Alexander Hamilton. So during this time that we hit uh 2000, my wife and I went to Alaska. We got married on a glacier, came back and she was pregnant with our firstborn, with our first child, Lucas. And when I saw, all I can think about was what art went through. And we were all working, you know, 100, 120, 140 hours a week. And it wasn't because they made us. It's because we wanted to. Mm. Like, we would, like, this was the type of place where people showed up on their day off to take pressure off. And that's, you know, that's that type A personality. Asshole, yeah. yes. But achievers also. Mm. Um, you know, we had, the, we, we had a vision, but it was blurry because there were so many voices. It wasn't a lot of argumentation. It was really well choreographed. But everybody had something that they brought to the table. Like I said, so you had to find something and do it well. And that was all that you were that cog for the whole machine. And you were good with being that cog. I mean, Art, who was the chef, we'd have to force him onto the pass during service because you're like, you, we don't, you don't belong back here. You need to lead us. So we would force Art to go out in the pass, even though he didn't want to be there. He's like, Jack Cena, you go out there. You like to talk to people or you'd send Taj out there who used to be a Marine uh, tank mechanic because, you know, you don't argue with Marines. So um, anyways, we come back and all I could think about was those moments with art where, I mean, it was, it's, it's sad, right? Because this industry does take from you to, it takes from you a lot. Um, it requires a lot and it can give a lot as well. But that moment, you know, I was thinking with my wife and firstborn, I'm like, I can't take my salary check and work less hours because I need to be there for my family. I felt like I was letting the team down. So I reached back to I reached back out to Eric back at Cafe Del Bono and said, hey, I want to come back. I want to finish what I started with you before I go off and do my own thing. And he took me back in. Um, and during that point, his brother's business, who he had 
His brother had shut down and subleased it out to another chef who kind of ran it into the ground. And his father approached me, who was a landlord, and said, would you be interested in this property? So I'm like, absolutely. So I write this business plan. My sister was working for Solomon Smith Barney at the time. She helped me put together a, a, you know, an A-plus business plan. I bring it to this bank, and they were, at that point, they, I mean, they were gung-ho about everything um, being developed in this area. It was a historical district that had been run down. They wanted to revitalize this area. Pardon <clears> me, <throat> Chef. Uh, Del Bono. Did I say it correct? Del Bono. Yeah. Del Bono. Where was this? Is this in New York or back? Yep. This is, yep. This is in New Hartford. This is not too far from the Alexander Hamilton. This is all in central New York. Okay. Um, So you went back there. You said you wanted to finish what I started with them. Uh, What what do you mean finish what you started? Did you feel like you left them early? Like, yeah, you know, I felt like I took off. I mean, I wanted to go, I wanted to chase the glory, right? I mean, I wanted to go do fine dining. I didn't just want to do what we were doing there. I knew what the fence line was there. So I knew that like there was no way I could do like I couldn't teach myself how to torchon uh, foie gras. There was no way I was going to be able to learn to um, further along like any charcuterie skills. There was no way I was going to be able to push those things because it was limited in its scope because that's what the business – the business was set around what was already there. Um, so I wanted to go back. I was hoping to be able to bring – at that point with Ian, I was dealing with more farmers. So I started becoming friends with them, and I wanted to bring that into there. So I get back into Eric's – I get back in there. Um, I think I was with him for probably about three months when his father approached me about the, about the building. So I put together the business plan. Um, I give it to the bank, and <clears throat> they get it. And then on a Friday, they call me back, and they're like, okay, but here's a problem. And they start – they spit off a couple numbers at me and they said you know your numbers aren't jiving and i'm like like my i know the numbers jive like i had multiple people look at it people that you know (laughs) people that work as cpas looking at Mm -hmm. it people that own businesses look at it Uh, my mother was a cpa so i mean she looked at it and said this is fine so i I sat on it over the weekend knowing like i looked at it when i got home and i was like well shit i'll say like they they transposed a number basically um like the, the, the last number became the first number and it just screwed up everything else. And I sat on it over the weekend. And honestly, by Monday, I knew that I wasn't like the space. I wanted my own space, but that wasn't it. Mm-hmm. So I, ca- I called them up and I was like, you know, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I apologize. I'm sorry that the, that the numbers didn't work out. I, I love the opportunity. Maybe in the future we can, you know, we'll, we'll keep a relationship and maybe in the future we can try this again. Um, by that point we had, my wife's family was living down here in Charlotte and we would come down for Thanksgiving. So we had right around then, um, Johnson and Wales was opening up here mm-hmm. and the, uh, Bobcats, the basketball team was about to come back. Well, they were the Hornets coming back as the Bobcats yet unnamed at that point. Um, and I kind of recognized that if I was going to move down here, if we were going to be we were going to move from where we were anyways. And it was pretty much either Austin where my sister was at the time or here. And my wife's family was all here. And only my sister was in Austin and Austin has, you know, it's a, it's a music town with a drinking problem. Um, <laughs> or actually they say it's a drinking town with a music problem. Right. Um, and I love Austin. I mean, that place is like my spirit animal, um, everything about it. But I knew that if I went there, I, I would lose my marriage because I would never be home. Yeah. There's so much great live music. It's just nonstop. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm asking my wife to move down to Texas where she's got no support base here. 
She had her sister who just had a child. Her mom and dad were here. This made sense. Um, So, and on top of it, like you could see that there was something about that something was going to happen here. If Johnson and Wales is willing to put down, uh, uh, put down tents, tent poles, it's going to happen. I thought it would happen a little bit sooner, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, Charlotte's where you focus on, right? You want to mm-hmm. do Charlotte. Uh, what was your vision? How how did you start putting b- the ball in motion? Like, how did you start? Didn't, dude. We sold we sold all of our furniture. I, we drove down in uh, my wife's minivan, listening to Bob the Builder over and over <laughs> and over and over, um, and got down here, and then we drove back up to New York um, with my father in law, and we finished packing everything up into uh, a moving truck put my car on a uh, on a trailer and drove down here with one of the worst alignments I've ever ever had the pleasure of doing and if you've ever been through Pennsylvania you know about construction <laughs> nightmare white knuckle the whole way here um, we came down with honestly clothing uh, our, our bedroom set some cribs and shit like and all my music and all my books. And that was it. Like we got rid of our dining room table, our living room stuff, our kitchen stuff. So what was your vision though? Like, what were you like? Did you come with a plan, or were you just going to get here and figure it out? Man, this is so. You know, this isn't for everybody, but for me, I came down here. Basically, what I came down here for was I wanted an authentic American experience, and by that I mean where I grew up. And you're in the Northeast, so you can kind of get this. If I were to ask you, "Where's your family from?" Where's your family from? Uh, Boston. Oh, yep. So you're gonna prove me wrong. Where I'm from, everybody, everybody, like especially with Cacciatore, I'm like thought for sure you'd name the freaking village in Italy. Like where we, how we grew up, everybody knew exactly where their family had come over from. Well, I mean, my my mom and dad are from Boston, but they come from my dad's half. Half of the family comes from Sicily, and the other half from northern Italy. My mom's mm -hmm. side of the family, she's been here since the Mayflower. Uh, Right, (laughs) they've been around. Um, so you've been here, yeah. So you've been here for a hot minute, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, but coming down here, man, it's like if I talk to somebody, I go, so you know, where's your family from? Because this was something that we would ask back home. I mean, if you met somebody new, you start chit chatting. That was always like it was like, what do you do for a living? Um, you know, where do you live? Where's your family from? These were things because it told you a lot about a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, you could. I mean, those three questions would sum up a lot. Then you knew kind of like where on the scale things would fit. Um, sort of what lexicon um, would best work for conversation, all these little things. Um, so you come down here and it's like, you know, where's your family from? I'm, oh, Shelby. Yeah. Like, you know, excuse me, 40, you know, 40 miles away from where we're at type thing. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that wasn't the selling point per se, but that was part of it. Um, that was it. That was an American experience. The cuisine here. Well, not necessarily in Charlotte, but the cuisine down here for the most part, mind you, this is pre Sean Brock pre like all of that stuff happening it was it was bubbling up there was you know you could see the the sort of the primordial ooze at that point where people were starting to think about in, indigenous ingredients mm-hmm. um and and the, the the nerd in me the geek in me man i got you know i'm a, I'm a you're i'm sure you're probably the same way you're a music nerd like i'm a like i'm that's the type of thing like <laughs> For me, music and food are so similar because, you know, you talk to you talk to music snobs, man, and they're like, yeah, well, that's a great that's a really good performance. So that's a great song. But when Yola Tangle did it at this bar that nobody went to, that was the best song ever. And you can't prove them wrong. <laughs> but that's the type of information that just, you know, kind of for me, kind of it really gets my uh, juices flowing, if you will. 
Um, and down here, that was, you know, Glenn was just starting to get things going at Anson Mills. Like he was really starting to pop at that point. Um, and it was that type of thing that was really turning me on. You could see sort of this burgeoning scene happening. It's just nobody really had their finger on it. Charleston did, but they also had the tourist money. And, you know, the food was already defined down there. And it's not a knock on those guys at all. It just, it was, that was, you know, I mean, that was sort of the genesis for a lot of what spread from there. Um, that was, you know, I don't know. It's uh, the, the dropped a lot on us, and I'm trying to keep yeah. it straight. Also, uh, the, it started with <laughs> no. It's great. I love it. So I started with authentic American experience mm-hmm. uh, is what we picked, and for you, the authentic American experience was. I, I mean, I, I I'm gonna swing, and maybe I, I'll miss on this, but like just the story of like who yeah. you are, where you're f- from, and I guess like what really drives. This, I don't know. Like I, I dude, might be the, a little the, lost. No, you were no, you were right on, man. Okay. Keep it simple. It was it's the story. Um, that was, you know, and it, that's for me, that's when it all coalesced. When I moved down here in this like search for, for, um, the authentic American experience, I mean, in my previous life, I traveled for a while doing poetry. I mean, I published a book and it was my great American novel condensed down. Um, and it was all about trying to find that, you know, this, this narrative that we have in this country, I'm fascinated by what drives people to identify with work. Um, you know, this, I mean, it, we're, we're used to be blue collar, middle-class country. And it's, you know, fascinating to me that ethos and down here, it was really the embodiment of it. I thought and felt and still do. Um, and it, and it came through on the food. There's a pride within the ingredients that come from, you know, certain areas, um, that resonated to me. And that was, it, it was really, it was the story and that's what I was finding. And that was from that point, is what sort of started the reboot for me here in the South. Okay. So how, okay. I love your passion. I love how you just, just spilled all that, like really what it was inside you that resonated with you, that drove you to, to come to the South and what saying to you and all that was great. But what things did you do in life to pull it off? Cause you were the chef owner of three restaurants, correct? At one point I was just, I was where here in Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah, I've been. I was. Oh, I was. I was a full partner owner in one restaurant, and the other ones are more like sweat equity owners. Okay, so I mean, you're you're a staple in that community. Like you, you're known mm-hmm. in this community. So, what things were you doing? Like this, this podcast. The, the mission of this podcast like, is to yeah. share knowledge and to understand what it is about you, chef, that mm-hmm. made you successful. Wow, man, I'm getting jacked up now. You got me jacked up. Uh, things that made you successful. I thought you were unstoppable. Let's go. Oh, man, I am unstoppable. But um, uh, no. I don't know if you guys can hear this. Uh, I, we're like, it's 8.21 p.m. Not super late, but Chef and I are like both swigging on beers right now. Uh, <laughs> so like we're just like feeding off each other's energy. And, uh, we're loosey-goosey, so this is good. But I, I really want to pull some nuggets, like some yeah. actionable advice that our listeners can be like, okay, like these are the things I need to get in place, the things I need to do, yeah. like – Drop some bombs Absolutely. on us. So we, so I got down here with no, like I had no leads, no friends, no reputation. So I left, like I said, we, we fire sailed everything and moved down here and rebooted. Um, so the first thing I did was, you know, obviously take two weeks off and just get a lay of the land and try to breathe a little bit and go, okay, let's go. And during that time I was reading a local periodical and there was one of the worst reviews I've ever seen. Um, for a place that had just opened up. I mean, and it was brutal. The upside was it was a really new place and it was beautiful inside. And that was the one thing that came through. 
and I just remembered the name of the street that it was on because it was it's called Selwyn Ave, and it's not a word that we. It's like Halcyon was to you, like mm. Selwyn, Selwyn. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah. So I went to interview at a country club just so I could a see about getting a job because I needed to get money and get a house. Um, and this country club just happened to intersect in Selwyn Avenue, and I'm like, God, that sounds familiar. I'm like, Oh yeah, that was that restaurant. Let me just drive around and see if I can find it. Went down three blocks. Son of a bitch, there it is. So I just cold called it, dropped my resume off. Lo and behold, they were looking for, and I have to make sure, a kitchen manager. They didn't know what an executive chef was. <laughs> so, exactly. So no wonder that they were having these problems. And the guy that was, that was, that was running the kitchen at the time was in over his head. There was no question about it that he was completely ill-prepared to be in that position. Um, so, I mean, he, he divulged a lot of information that you definitely don't want to divulge during um, an interview as far as, like, numbers, but even more than that, just gossipy shit. And I was mm. just like, this place really could use sort of what I had done at Del Bono's. Most right? people would be- run from that situation, but you're like yeah. – I, I, I just looked. Yeah, you know, I felt like I felt like Mr. Wolf in uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, man. I was like, I'm going to come in and clean. Okay. Because um, I had kind of, like I said, I did that with Del Bono, so it was something in my comfort zone. But I didn't want to do anything that I had done before. I didn't want to do Italian food. I didn't want to do American Continental. Um, that much I knew, and I didn't want to do like I, I wanted to work completely different. So I sat down um, and I was brutally honest with the partners there. Um, when I took the job, I honestly went in with the attitude that I was just going to interview because I needed to brush up on my skills. Um, and I decided that I would be brutally honest because I needed to, like, I, I hadn't experienced a lot of that. Um, and we sat down and we had a really good interview. And there was another job that I kind of really wanted to take because I liked the owner a lot, but it was similar to what I had done in the past. So I took this job with Sweat Equity Partnership and proceeded to start the retooling of it. So... From there, I got much more um, a, a bigger uh, – cra- I got a crash course in numbers. And I should state, when I first took the job, they offered me – they said, hey, it's between you and one other guy. Would you be willing to just be a sous chef? And in my mind, I'm like, so no keys, no major responsibility. I can cook. I can kind of hone my skills a little bit, and I can look for another job. Absolutely, I'll take it. So I took I took the job as sous chef, and um, the gentleman that – took the job is a was a fucking awesome numbers guy um he's not he he wasn't a cook to be honest with you and he's not even in the game anymore um but he was really he was a good numbers guy and he was ambitious as fuck (laughs) so so what'd you learn from this you said it was a crash course in numbers what'd you learn well i'm about to get to that so um (laughs) so we we get this so we're rolling along we do um i do a couple of services before he gets there and i'm seeing a nightmare the kitchen is poorly designed there's a fucking bottleneck you can't get food out of that kitchen because there's no flow um i saw one of the worst uh, mother's day services i ever saw uh it was just it was brutal this place got popped for brunch it is right in the middle of one of the poshest neighborhoods surrounded by three churches um and southerners love to brunch Mm -hmm. so he gets in there, we get through a couple we get through about a month barely, and then Father's Day happens. And my executive chef got relegated to poorly dropping toast for service. I had one of the busboys expo because he was better at it. Um, but the number thing. 
So Brian was well steeped in systems, um, clipboard guy through and through. So from that, I learned how, like basically how you do, how a perpetual can make your weekly P and L live. So like checking your um, your priority inventory nightly, following through during the day. You know, coming in the morning, recounting that with somebody else doing it. So looking for theft, looking for loss, looking for attention. Um, <clears throat> at that point, looking for blame. Mm-hmm. And this will come in, this this will come in a little bit while when I said looking for blame. So. Um, we move into October by this year, and during and during this time, Brian managed to go from just being the executive chef to getting the general manager demoted to bar manager and became general manager executive chef, as well as being partner. I have to go to Austin for um, family reasons, and while I'm down there, um, I get a phone call from my sous chef, even though I was a sous chef because you know everybody's got their right hand man. And he's like, hey, um, Brian's leaving. <clears throat> They're going to offer you Brian's uh, position. And I'm like, fuck, I don't really want to be a GM and executive chef, to be honest with you. But I was down in Austin to bury my sister. And my sister was um, self-made and was you know, probably about six months from banking a million dollars. Not Jeez. making, banking. Um, brilliant business person. And the one thing with my sister that – I know if I had had the conversation with her would have been do it, take the thing that you don't know and do it. It's the same thing. Like, you know, she's one to kind of push me at this cook point at one time where she was just like, bullshit, just bullshit and do it, you know, fake it. Now they call it fake it till you make it. We didn't have that phrase back then, but that was sort of it. <clears throat> and granted, I had a better idea of what was going on. So I came back, sat down with them and I was like, okay, this is what I want for points. As far as in the, like, I don't want, five points. I don't want 10 points because anything under 15 points is meaningless. What do you mean points? Um, so, what do you mean points? Ownership points, okay, percentage. Okay. Got it. So, you know, like five, like if they, if somebody offers you 5%, you have no parlay upside. If they fail, you don't have any responsibility. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a feel good ownership thing. Um, but you know, like every feel good movie, you're not going to remember it in a year. Um, you know, <laughs> it's like, seriously, dude, it's just like, it sounds really, good but it's not when you when when as a chef and you know this is the thing i think that cooks should take from it when they get up there is they have to really think about what they want when they say yes and if they offer points and you want ownership points what what are you willing to risk because if, you, if you're really gung-ho about the project don't settle on five points settle on 10 because now at this point you have a real stake in the business so you really have to a perform and b they have to have your back they have to be serious about it too um, so we sat down, we had, we had a conversation about what, you know, what, what would work. And we set a we set a pretty aggressive plan to go from five point to 10 point. As long as that under my leadership, I could show that I could make things happen and turn it that much more further around. So I started to, um, retool and revamp. And the, it, one of my strengths is, is creativity. Um, you know, if, if any, if you look at my press from, you know, especially in the high end restaurants, it's one of the things I'm known for. Um, clever menus, <clears throat> without being overly clever. There's that you can overdo it, and trust me, I've done overdone. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> well versed in overdoing clever. Um, but we we set an aggressive plan, and during that point, uh, my wife met, which would be my future business partner for Breeze. So. Fabrice was sort of in between jobs and I was like, well, you know, why don't you come, like, I can get you some hours at least, uh, you know, come run my floor, you know, like run the host stand, great people. He's French, good looking, 
who doesn't want to, you know, you want that when you walk into a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and Fabrice was, had lived in New York as, as well. And, you know, especially in the city. So Fabrice is a type of guy, this restaurant, mind you, they were like, you know, oh, well, close down, close down the eighties, you know, cause the staff can't handle it. So they would actually choke down business because the wait staff was not properly trained to handle volume or they wouldn't hire enough people. It was, it, there's some number of things in there that didn't jibe with me. Mm-hmm. Hence why I didn't work there. But Fabrice was the type of guy that would make tables appear when they were all full. You know what I mean? Like he'd go steal one from the neighbors and go like, ah, I got a spot for you right <laughs> over here. The enchanted grotto is a fucking dark space under the stairs. Oh, um, so, so I, like everybody, like the servers, the, 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 the mediocre servers hated them. The rock stars are like, fuck yeah, put this guy on. Cause you're like, he knows what it takes to make money in the restaurant mm-hmm. business, and that's volume. You know, it's always volume. You want—I don't mean the, well, obviously, but you've, you've got to find what works for you. And we had the space, we had the kitchen, we had the ability to handle the volume. We just needed somebody that was willing to help open that throttle up. You know, make make people—you got to sweat a little bit. You know, money is money. You got to sweat to make money. You do. Yeah, man, in the, in the in the restaurant industry, <laughs> I can't believe we're already almost at an hour. We still got to leave room for the speed round. Uh, and at this point, have, so this is how you get you got your equity. Uh, I guess you, you never really had your own vision, but you you contributed to a restaurant. Did you ever open your own restaurant, your own vision? Yes, have your well, own thing? Th- this is exactly this. So the thing was, is once we got moving along, I got screwed over on a Sunday brunch. I had already put in like my, my notice. I tried to talk with the owners where I was like, hey. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And it took them two weeks to sit down. I called the, I called all the partners up and I was like, Hey, we need to sit down and chit chat. I've, you know, I've, I, I've got some important things I need to talk about. They showed up two days later, um, sitting at the bar. They had been out during the day and they're like, Oh, have a drink and sit down and talk. And I'm like, this is, this is about numbers and you can't drink and talk numbers. Like that's a hard, fast rule that I have. I will never talk business with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, your intensity level goes down. Um, you're susceptible to make poor decisions. Um, and I know this personally because I've done it. Um, not necessarily with, with num- well, that's not true. I mean, drinking marks are always way richer than sober marks <laughs> by everybody around. So in any event, we, so with talking with Fabrice, we found a spot, right? On my days off, Fabrice is like, ah, oh, we're going to do this. So we'd go off and look at something didn't work. We found this space that eventually became Lulu and we walked into it. And the minute that we got in there, we both saw the same thing volume we felt busy the energy was right it wasn't like uh, we, you know, we, we want to open up and the first thing that looks good we're taking we passed up on some good looking spots until we found the right vibe so we sit down with the owners and i told them that you know i finally got somebody to sit down and i'm leaving and we're getting down to my last shift nobody in the kitchen showed up because they knew i was pretty much done and they weren't coming back so we get hammered there's a big run walk going on and none of this hardly any of the servers showed up I'm answering, trying to answer the phone, trying to get the, try to do the manager thing, trying to cook food. And I can't get anybody to answer the phone, you know, or come in and help me. The phone rings, I pick it up. I can't quite hear what they're saying. I try to answer as polite as possible, get off the phone. So, you know, 20 minutes after the phone call comes or whatever, the owner comes in, he's hung over, sunglasses on, and he's like, why do I got to get a phone call at 20 after 12 on a Sunday to tell me that the person on the phone's being curt? And I'm looking at him like, are you serious right now? Like the first thing out of your mouth, should be, where's the staff? The second thing should be, holy fuck, what do you need? Yeah. So and that, and the thing is, is what I took out of that was, is that again, 
it's a matter of listening and now it's a matter of respect and and i don't mean respect for me but respect for your own self and for your business i'm sorry that somebody called you at 20 minutes after 12 there's a fire or a problem at your restaurant you know what i mean the proverbial fire um and if you're serious about making money like you have to take ownership of that absolutely great management means that you pass on responsibility doesn't mean that you pass the buck on responsibility you have to give ownership to the person that you're doing this to but they have to be accountable to you and you need to be accountable to them and he was you know at that moment he definitely wasn't um and it gave me a it really gave me an insight into listening better to people because the clues had been there all along Mm -hmm. um this i i honestly don't feel that that restaurant was ever set for money success, I think that it was part of like they're in construction and stuff, and I think they use it as a tax shelter, tidy thing, you know. Um, but they wanted a or they just wanted a country club for themselves. Yeah. Like they wanted they wanted a family restaurant during the day, and they wanted strippers and cocaine and alcohol, you know, flowing freely at night type situation. That's fine if that's what you're into, but that's for me. That's not why I'm in this industry, and I would think that the majority of your listeners um, that are here to like you know look for inspiration, they're not here for that either. So you, um, you go out, you do your own thing with the farmhouse mm-hmm. guy. Yeah, uh, so we open up. So we open up this restaurant called Lulu, um, and I mean you can talk to Charlatanians, and this is you know the funny thing is, is that from the get go for me, it's like uh, this is a restaurant people are going to talk about you know twenty years down the road. I'm like I'm looking at it, I'm like dude. We got to get the doors open first, okay? Let's worry about that one. Just, you know, uh, he's – I'm romantic. You know, I'm, I, I live inside my head a little bit. Fabrice even more so. I mean, he's French. Um, so we – like, we did the shit. So we opened this restaurant up and up. So here's the thing, folks. And I'm going to stress this now before, like, getting into the story on Lulu real quick, is that you need to be property, properly capitalized. Don't do was it Michael Simon when he opened up Lola with like opened up with like the last twenty dollars in his pocket. That's when they knew it was time to open the door. We opened this restaurant for it was turnkey with a lot of sweat on our ends. Like we put up the walls, we did this, we did that. Um, for probably about thirty for maybe let's say about thirty thousand dollars initially on both of us, and both of us did it on credit cards, and then I threw another twenty on top of it. So about 80,000 all said and done in the first year went into this restaurant. Um, so we got it that's going. That's still is, pretty lean, man. That's not a lot. Yeah, no, it's definitely not a lot. But on credit cards, it's a little, you know, yeah. the, the return rate's not necessarily smart. But the thing was, is it was like, if you, the hardest thing about opening a restaurant is closing it. The second hardest thing about a restaurant is making the initial leap. You have to just walk off that cliff. Yeah. It's hard, man. It's because you untether from everything that you know. Yeah. So we, and that's what we did. So this is, you know, we did that. We untethered into this restaurant, um, but we just knew that it was going to work. So we opened up the restaurant with, we saw the books of the previous owner, we can call them the books. We saw like receipts and we're like, well, shit, you know, if we can double that by the first month, like we'll probably be all right. So our basic model on opening this place, kind of like Ian did, like we didn't set our sights high, right? We just needed to do certain things. Like he said, on during when you, your conversation, mm-hmm. And that was the same thing for us. It was just like, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have this idea that it was going to be something larger than it was. We didn't, we didn't get a James Beard award nomination for this. I'm, I just want to state that. So not the same situation as Ian, but, uh, but still this idea of something bigger than what we anticipated because we just, we were just doing what we believed in for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, we opened this restaurant up 
end of the first week. We opened it the day after Christmas, by the way. Um, we had a slight issue with our last inspection, and they told us that we would be able to open the doors as long as this one thing got fixed. The plumber needed to come and basically uh, change a temperature governor, okay. uh, governor on something. So he did this on Christmas Eve. We opened Jeez. up on Christmas, the day after Christmas, December 26th. 2004 um or 2005 sorry um we opened up and fabrice his wife had just had their first child and we opened up with no money left in our pockets and a week later we got our first piece of press from the main food critic at the time we made our top 10 list of things that you needed to do and we were and we were number six um and she picked up and the thing is is like lulu immediately people picked up on it because it was extremely personal um, there was, you know, I was cooking, it was my food, my kitchen, my restaurant. So I was having the conversation that I've been trying to have. I was telling a story. I was working with local farmers and what they were doing. I wanted that story on. This is the time that I found Ian online. He had just closed the Staunton grocery and he had this beautiful note about what it took to own that place and what it meant to him and why it was closing. And he, he talked about that a little bit on your podcast. And I and that stuck with me until I finally met Ian, you know, five years later, six years later at Atlanta Food and Wine. Mm-hmm. So we do – we open up Lulu. We, man, we get going and we like within we, – we, we doubled what we wanted to do on our first week. Like each day doubled the day prior and by the end of our second week, man, we were fucking crushing it. We're doing 120 covers. This is with two burner saute. Wow. And a, and a flat top, top on the wrong side and a 72 inch kitchen. That's how long the hotline was. It was me and fucking big sexy, my fucking sous chef, Kurt Applegate. And he's six foot. He's like Joey. He was six foot four. He's a big motherfucker <laughs> and no room in his kitchen at all. Um, but we, but the thing is we hammered out food like you wouldn't believe. And everybody felt it. Like we, I ended up with all, most of my best relationships in Charlotte had formed out of that restaurant, whether it's customers or cooks. Um, because it was a real conversation and people now it's been closed three, four years. And I'm not like, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not patting myself on the back. I just want to explain that when, when you're true to yourself, when you open up your own business and you really follow through with you, don't, don't go for the trend. That's great. But it's People will suss it out that it's inauthentic, that it's not real. We were having a real conversation and people got it. Mm. Um, so no, go ahead. Th- you opened in 2005 and you closed in 2014. Yeah, I shut. Well, I left, I had to sell. So we hit, we were getting on year three and the things were, you know, we're still, you know, we're spotty. I mean, we were making it, but not quite. It was like, Oh, if we could just do, you know, an extra grand, if we could just do this, if we could just do that. We were doing when I think during the heyday before, uh, before the recession hit, you know, we we went from twenty four to thirty two thousand in sales a week to um, thirty eight, and you know this is on fifty two seats, mm. um, and very little labor. We didn't have to pay a chef because I was the chef. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to pay a general manager because Fabrice was a general manager. So we were lean and we were paying it down. You know what I mean? We mm-hmm. were we were doing okay, but at the same time, like we were buying the success rate a little bit, and that's. You know, that's something to learn from. That's a failure, honestly. It's a good Wait, operator. You were buying the success rate. What do you mean by that? Meaning that we, you know, the, the buzz that was going on about the restaurant, Let it go we to started. Head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we were like, yeah, we're good enough. And, you know, it's like we, we, so we, like, both as far as how we handled the finances, we're like, oh, we'll be fine. 
Like we didn't, you know, like Ian was talking about, he had his separate accounts. Like we didn't go that we didn't go far enough into our numbers. Okay. Because, because we were too passionate about our product Mm -hmm. that we weren't, we weren't protecting our product. So when the recession hit, it really showed, um, it, it exposed our weaknesses and it was basically one of two things. One of us has to go or the whole place has to, or the whole place has got to go. Okay. So Fabrice and I had the conversation. I mean, we got down to where it's like, can I take 50 bucks this week? I got to make some sandwiches out of the restaurant, you know, so my kids can eat. Um, it, it got, it got pretty scary. Um, so Fabrice bought me out. Um, I, you know, for about what I had into a give or take. And I knew he was, first of all, I knew he was going to offer more than I would. He always had an inflated sense of what the place is worth. Mm-hmm. So I thought, honestly, I think he was right from the get go. And a couple of times he was like, we can sell this place right now. And I'm like, I'm not selling it. I'm making my stand. Um, we should have sold. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but anyway, so he bought me out, um, in 2000, February, 2009. So I was four years, just over four years in, he bought me out. And then I went to work, um, for, uh, with, uh, Blake Hartwick, who has been in my, basically been wherever I've gone. When I went to beard house, like he was with me when I, when I did these things and he's taking care of me as well. Um, so I went to work for him as a sous chef while I tried to figure out what my next move was. So Fabrice buys me out and I'm just taking weekly payments on, you know, a less than stellar paycheck, but at least it's something we're still like, we're still in the recession, man. And things were still falling at that point. Mm -hmm. It was the, it was depressing. And I live in a banker town. So you can imagine that it was bleak. We went from $30, $40 pork chop plates to, you know, everybody's doing comfort food um, for, you know, $18. I mean, everybody's just like, we're trying. Yeah. Uh, so I went to work with uh, Blake and, uh, you know, that was, it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was honestly kind of like summer camp for a little while. Um, but at the same time, Blake working under somebody again was, it was a different and I'm really good at collaborating with people. So I don't have like. I've never had the ego problem in the kitchen. Um, I love to collaborate with other people. Somebody called me the Willie Nelson of chefs. Like I'll play with everybody. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, you know, but the thing is, is like I picked up from Blake, like he had, he had a really good intensity level that I didn't do at Lulu. Like I had music playing all the time in my kitchen. It was it, like, that's me. I mean, I was like, I'm a good time guy. I'm putting out good time food. We're serious about it. But I realized like when we walked away, when I went back and I'm looking at the press, I'm like, Man, if I had just tightened up a little bit, that would have been like that could have been my shack, right? That could have garnered some interest. So um, let's let's really try to boil yeah. it down. Like, what is the big takeaway from this experience? If hindsight being twenty twenty, if you could do anything mm-hmm. different, like what would you have done differently? Man, I would have shut the music off at five o'clock in the kitchen. There would have been no pirate yoga every night. We did this little thing where it's like pirate yoga and a beer. You know, everybody unwind before service. Okay. Horrible, horrible idea. Um, you know, it's throwback to you know like late eighties, early nineties kind of rock star mode, um, which you didn't really experience. And I'm like, you know, I want everybody to feel like part of the team in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. It was my kitchen, but I like, I'd hang up ideas and like write the menu with me, you know, jump on. Like I wanted that as a cook. Yeah. Um, that was poor. Le- that was poor leadership on my part though, because I was making them equals as opposed to making them peers. Mm. Big difference. What's the difference? Um, so I- well, by a leader, they knew exactly, like I was showing them by example, day in and day out that even as an owner of the restaurant and as much as I want to do stuff, there's a time and a place. And instead I made, you know, instead I wanted something more organic, more, uh, more democratic or egalitarian, if you will. I really wanted to see what that was like. And it doesn't work. Not completely. 
Um, you, you, somebody has to be held accountable. Um, and even though by default I was, I wasn't owning up to it as a chef at that point. People loved the food. There was no question about it. But from a business acumen point of view, I think I could have tightened down. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and it's, and I think that's important. Well, so I go ahead. I was just going to say, I was just gonna say, so from there, I mean, I went to work with Blake. He got me much more in tune to, he, he brought back my discipline mm. that I didn't, that I didn't bring at my own spot. Um, and, and, you know, working with him and working with somebody a little bit different than me, uh, brought out a different side of my creativity. And then I got offered the Halcyon gig and that was like it, the brand new uptown, uh, museum of, um, arts and crafts. And so, which speaks to me as an artist, um, and being like, you know, I mean, it was fucking at that point, that was the perch. Like we were the sweet spot. And on top of it, the, the big announcement, Emeril Lagasse's opening up a restaurant and he's opening it up underneath me. I was like, eat that. <laughs> you know, I was like, like, and there was this ego thing that started to come up with this idea. And the owners were like, you know, we want farm to fork. We want, this was, you know, 2010. Um, they're like, we want farm to fork. We want as local as can be. We want this, we want that. This is how we want to do it. And so I'd sit down and design the kitchen. And I'm like, the kitchen's way too small. That's a cafe kitchen. There's like once the shelves go in, there's no place to keep shit. The walk-in cooler was the size of two refrigerators, like household refrigerators, big ones, but still two. Um, but I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll make it work. That's always been my attitude. If that's what I got, I'm going to make it work. Um, and we did. So we went, I sat down, I hired my sous chef. We built a lexicon, sort of designed the idea of what everything was going to be like, what is the conversation that we're having? And we knew that we were going to work with as many farmers as we could, that we were going to bring in shit every day. Cause we didn't have much refrigeration space. So it was going to be, you know, we had to be creative on ordering on purchasing. We had to be respectful to our ingredients. We had to utilize everything. Stems of collard greens would become relishes and pickles. Um, you know, we were buying whole pigs and everything got used. And it's nothing new anyways, like, and it's still nothing new. It wasn't new when I did it and it's not new now. Um, but coming out of the recession, we were the first ones in Charlotte that went like, we doubled down the minute we opened the doors, like $35 pork chop plate, $40 this $50 that I'm like the recession. It's, it's going to go away. And this is what I have to charge to barely make my number. And my numbers at that point were running food costs, probably at about 34 to 37%, depending upon the time of year. But this was agreed upon before we opened. So what's the lesson is, there in, in saying those numbers? And what, what can we take away from that? So, well, I mean, obviously the leaner, the number. So for instance, and this, you know, this is something I picked up from somebody far smarter than me. Um, and they were just like, if you think McDonald's is running a food cost of 18%, you're a fool. They're making probably, you know, 32 to 34% on a dollar. So 30, you know, uh, uh, off of a dollar. But the thing is, is that's off of billions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, like most, uh, most restaurant operators are doing it off of, you know, a couple of million, really. So, you know, I'd rather have less of billions than more of millions. Yep. If that makes sense. Yeah. So with so within what we were doing with with Halcyon with these numbers is, is that a fine dining restaurant at that point, you know, you should expect to do 27, 28% food costs. So that's what you should expect to put in. Um, so your plate, when your plate comes out, that's how much you have into it. 
everything else after that starts to pay down your bills, unless you're figuring in Q factor, which most you're not really, that's, that's part of operational costs and that usually doesn't come out of the plate. I've never worked in a place that does. I'm sure somebody's pulling it off. Um, so we knew that going into it because of the product that we were dealing with was going to be high. So our, basically our motto was, is no waste. doesn't mean we were serving trash. It just meant that we had to buy smart stretching it. Yeah, we had to, yep. you know, but, and, but the thing is, is like, that's to me is a great challenge. And yep. I learned and patience is what you learn. Um, when you're dealing with farmers, because it's not a matter of calling them up and going like, all right, I need uh, two cases of uh, bread light Swiss chard tomorrow. Well, if it got frost overnight, you ain't getting shit. Mm-hmm. So you better be prepared for whatever it is that they bring or be able to work with whatever they don't bring because that's what you're getting. Um, oh, man. man, you're so, going into detail right now, chef. And I love what uh, you're sharing. Sorry. No, you're, it's good. It's good. Uh, we're at an, an hour and 18 minutes and we still got to leave room for the speed round. Uh, where are we on your timeline? Like, um, where, right, so I just want to make sure we get the good stuff before we move. I don't want to cut you short. No, that's fine. So like, I mean, honestly that, so we do this, we, we do, we're, so we're doing Halcyon, right? And then like, not like my, my kitchen, my management, they start talking James Beard. You know, James Beard is that fucking specter that hangs over every chef, right? Yeah. And me, I've always had this vision. And again, like, you know, I may, at times I might sound smart. I'm a fucking idiot, honestly. <laughs> um, and, or at least I'm oblivious to a lot of the obvious shit. I'm, at heart, I really just thought if I cooked, great food and busted my ass and put in hours and like sacrifice and sacrifice that, that they would notice. That's how it works. Yeah. Um, what's the truth? The truth is, is you need great PR and a great story. Mm. Um, and that's really it. It's not the, and that doesn't take away from anything that these chefs that have gotten it have achieved. They're definitely, they definitely deserve it, but there's people out there, unsung cooks that also deserve it that will never get that chance because they don't have a great PR firm or they don't have the right story. Um, and that's just reality of it, you know? And it's, the thing is you have to be fine with it. And once I got to peek behind the curtain, I wasn't fine with it because that's not like, I felt like it was pay to play. And again, not knocking James Beard. They do a lot of great things at the foundation. It's just me personally, how I thought it worked. And again, like I said, I'm an idiot. Um, so we do, we're, so we get a, we get a PR team out. Um, I'm going to try to cut Halcy on really quick. So we get a PR turn. We get a PR team. Um, she becomes in house, fantastic woman. And we sat and we talked and she's like, you know, what about this? I'm like, I don't want to do TV. I don't want to do things that take me out of the kitchen for more than three days. Um, I'm not interested in that. I'd love, like I said, James Beard, that's what I'm into. That's like, that's what I want to do for me. That's the ultimate achievement. That's the recognition that I want that says you're good. Yeah. So we get going and, you know, so I do, I end up doing, um, I get hooked up with, uh, Craig Rogers from border spring farms. Cause I was looking for lamb and there wasn't a lot here in Charlotte. And from him, like all of a sudden, like my world started to expand out with my farmers and great stories, great product. Um, and it just pumped me like every day. The menu's changing now and we're just really getting shit on point. And I'm just like, this is fucking great. Um, and then, because of Craig, so I get set up to do Atlanta Food and Wine. I meet Hugh Aikson and Ryan Smith at Empire State South. Um, Sean Brock was there. Um, you know, it was just like, holy shit, like all the rarefied air. Um, and then um, Ashley Christensen, like, tweets out about the Lamheart Ramen that I'm doing, this late night thing. And I'm like, I'm blown away, dude. Like, that was it. Like, that was really – and the funny thing is, is 
away from it all now that I've got time sort of back away from fine dining, that the, 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 the having your peers recognize you is more important in that fashion when you're feeding people, when you're communing with them is way better than any fucking gust out dinner that you can come up with. Awesome. Um, so anyways, we go forward and then by this point now, Blake is working for the company. Um, and I've got this one, this girl, Alyssa, who was one of my men or she was my mentee. And then she started working for another restaurant within the company, became an executive chef. And we all go up to New York and do a beard dinner. And, and right after that, dude, it was like fire sale. Like next thing you know, one of one of us is gone and the next one's gone and now I've got really weird pressure coming down on me and it just it got really divisive really quick and I had to take stock in the whole situation. I would lost like the stress had wore out my like I was down to I, I look like um, a survivor of the Holocaust. I was skin and bones, smoking cigarettes, not sleeping, not eating, drinking way too much, working way too hard and just stressed out. I mean, my doctor like put me at hypertension level, like, you know, heart attack, inevitably, it's going to happen soon. Um, and I just realized that I was like the whole industry, like everything that I thought was right about the industry just didn't work for me. So Saturday night, I'm like, it's done. It's over. Like, I, like we finished up and I was already supposed to get up with Jamie Lynch from Top Chef, Five Church uh, here in Charlotte and now down in Atlanta and Charleston. And he's a good buddy of mine. And like, I just said, dude, like, you know, it's over. I don't know what I'm going to do. So he's like, come on over. We're going to sit down. We'll have a beer. And I got a feeling when I got, when I left there that I was going to, like, they were going to offer me a position. They were getting ready to do Nan and Byron's. And Nan and Byron's was not fine dining, but it was Jamie, Jamie and I. So people had high expectations. This thing was supposed to be the little engine that could. That was going to be the thing that we could cookie cutter and put anywhere in any city and it was going to work. And by the end of six months, we all knew that it was, it was not what any of us should be doing. The, like I never had numbers work the way that they did as far as living. And I'm talking about like a living perpetual that at any minute, if Pat, the owner or primary principal owner had called up, I could give him the answer. And I had said earlier about the blame thing and it said this would come back to play. So we'd have to come to a weekly meeting with numbers and inventory. Like, so we needed our perpetual. We needed our inventory, our labor. Um, last week's or last month's and the, the month before that, like projections that we had made and then our living perpetual through the week for labor and our labor plan, food buying and our food buying plan, and then how the sales interjected and what we did. And the thing is, is we would sit down and what I learned from a great operator was sitting there and going through all this stuff to look to blame on somebody will not get you anywhere in the business. We would sit there for hours sometimes. And mind you, this is like 120, 130 hours a week that we're working and then trying to have that at the end of the week, your mind fried. And the thing was, is what, what Pat was always looking for was not the blame, but the, the solution to how not have that happen again. Um, and that is something that I think from that point on, even though, when I left there, when I left that situation, I was like, okay, maybe I'm done cooking. Like maybe I'm just fucking tired of the whole thing. But that was one thing I picked up from that was not like, it's really easy to point blame, right? This goes back to the first kitchen. It's, it's so easy to point out at like, this is that person's problem. He's the one that caused it. You're still not fixing it. Mm. 
Like you need it to. It doesn't be, matter you, who's right or who's responsible. It's coming to nah, the solution and moving forward. The, the, the problem is still there. So like either you're part of it by putting blame out there, or you just fucking gird your loins. Don't worry about what caused it, and stop the flood. Right? Clean up the mess. Do whatever it is. Be be a problem solver. You mm-hmm. got to be critical on it. So that's what that was my takeaway on that. And now you know, Carrie, I'm doing Earl's Grocery, working 50 hours a week during the day, and I got my little podcast or webcast thing and. <laughs> Doing which is, pottery, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, and I'm, before we wrap up today, I'm going to make sure we we mm-hmm. do talk about that in the closing thoughts and the make yeah. sure we redirect people in that direction. But we do need to take a break to thank our sponsor. We'll be right back, dude. You're crushing it. I think this is the least amount of talking I've ever done. To be unstoppable, most restaurant owners require extra capital from time to time. When you need funding to renovate, buy equipment, or manage cash flow, you don't have time to track down financial statements or wait weeks for decisions. That's where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. Apply online and you'll get a decision right away. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You never have to reapply to take out additional loans and you only pay for the funds you use. Cabbage has helped more than 100,000 businesses from every industry with over $3 billion in funding. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes 100 company twice in a row. Check out Cabbage with a K dot com slash unstoppable and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash unstoppable line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions nobody likes doing paperwork if you have a growing group of restaurants and find yourself wishing you could snap your fingers and have all of your invoices and ap instantly disappear from your plate then you need to call sorcery sorcery is used to make owning and operating a restaurant a breeze instead of dreading invoices you'll be delighted to be synced with every vendor with their new relationships you can work on negotiating the best price to improve your margins and sorcery's biggest super power is that they watch the prices you pay across the kitchen from dry goods to proteins to produce and when citrus skyrockets you'll know to update your recipes before you end up kicking yourself at the end of the quarter to learn more head over to www.getsorcery.com or find the banner in the show notes if you mention restaurant unstoppable at checkout you'll get your first month free yep we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success honestly i think it's and this is i'm i'm gonna apologize for the words but hanging your dick out there hanging your um, dick out there <laughs> And what I mean by that is being fearless. And, you know, it's it's really easy to be the chef guy and say that. But, yeah, just being fearless, like be the person that's willing to take the take risks, but don't be um, don't be risky, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But basically, that's right. But, you know, don't don't be stupid about the risks that you're taking. I'm not talking about, you know, driving 100 miles an hour completely under the influence. I'm talking about like being in control and being willing to just hang it out there. And, you know, if you fail, great. I'd rather fail. I'd rather fail being authentic to myself than 
be successful, but not really being me. Yeah, really. At the end of the day, if you're going to grow, if you're going to go places, you need to be in that area of discomfort where you're constantly learning, where you're pushing yeah. yourself, where you're putting your dick out there, or your vagina, whatever yeah. genital you have. <laughs> Sorry uh, just, for that, guys. throw it out there. <laughs> and that's where you're going to grow. Really just being on the edge and just pushing yourself and growing and pu- putting yourself in situations where you're forced to learn or else you get kicked How, to the curb. Yeah. How are you going to find out? How are you going to find out who you are? Yeah. Awesome. What is your biggest weakness? Man, my biggest weakness is probably being too nice. Um, and probably thinking that I understand people too well, you know, like I give them the benefit of the doubt. And I I think by doing that, I uh, give them, I think I coddle them too much. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book out there put out by uh, Nick Cirillo uh, from Nick's Pizza, and he has this this leadership style he calls Trust and Track. Uh, it's huge to trust. Trust goes so far. It can really that having that that culture of trust is so important. I feel it sounds like you had that, but you got to track, and yep, you, you can't gotta. you can't just trust without track. You really got to find a system or create a system to track and make sure people are doing it right and uh, not burning you. Awesome. Yep, exactly. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have for leading others? Being patient um, and learning to speak that person's language. Um, you know, when it, you, and I, I'm going to digress just briefly with the thing that you and Ian were talking about with the, with the um, help that's out there and working with millennials. And, you know, millennials are really quick to get bashed. And this is going to this is where I'm going to tidy it up. Um, it, the thing is, is they are the going to be the growing number in the force as us old timers start to become the diminishing number in the force. So we're going to have to sort of change our ways to deal with the oncoming next wave of people coming in. A good leader needs to be able to adapt. They need to be able to speak the, they need to be able to speak the language of that individual if they're going to communicate what they want them to do. If they're going to lead properly, they have to be able to be understood properly. Got it. What is your biggest challenge today? Man, <laughs> Find, I would have to say just maintaining um, control over so many projects. Like just like Earl's Grocery is multifaceted in a way. It's challenging in a way that fine dining never was. Um, number one, finding the help. This is something I'm sure everybody's been saying. Yeah. Um, and then being able to train all these different sections that I have. I have a production kitchen. I have an a la carte kitchen. I have people working food in retail selling my stuff. And I need to be able to – some of these people are not – like the retail people that are doing a little bit of work are not trained – they're not trained to be cooks. They're just like you know pressing paninis in, a, in, in the charcuterie section, right? But I have to be able to communicate them the proper – um, the, the proper food handling techniques. So uh, the biggest challenge is really being able to keep all those balls in the air, like while you're juggling them and still, and still maintain the creativity and the drive and the, you know, and the things in the kitchen. So how are you maintaining that control, those balls in the air while doing everything else? Are you, what, what things are you doing to control that? Well, I think that just comes down with, to the trust and track thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing is with this job, I've given up the control that I'm so used to, that I've always had and I'm allowing others to be involved. This is less, this whole thing is less about me. Earl's isn't about Mark in the kitchen. This is about a combination of a number of people that are involved that have been around that are, you know, seasoned vets that are well-regarded and respected. So people aren't necessarily coming in because it's my food. They might be coming in because the owners and their other restaurant that they own and they're friends of them and they're coming in for that. 
or they're coming in because Robbie knows how to make sure that, um, you know, our associates are, are personable and are giving good customer service. So it's, it's really much more about being a team more and less about being that leader. Got you. So this is a newer question. What is one code of conduct or behavior you're teaching your team? Um, this is where I'm at now. It's all about respect. So I don't like, I don't allow a lot of grab ass in my kitchen. Um, not nearly like I used to. And I definitely make sure that they're understanding, um, that the basic, I'm going to put it down to one word, empathy. Mm. You know, they need to understand where each individual is coming from. And that's the respect that they got to have for every one of their coworkers. Yeah. And I think if it starts from that level of respect, it shows through in everything else that they do. That's what I'm finding with my young cooks. Beautiful. If they're and respecting even that word empathy goes back to listening first, seeking to understand really figuring out what other people's situation is and coming from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be so powerful. Yeah. I mean, you remember the whole, the, the whole, like the chef thing where it's like, I'm right. Even when I'm wrong, I'm right. Sometimes you have to admit where you're wrong. Yep. Awesome. And what is uh, one book that is a must read that will make us either a better person or restaurant operator? So a lot of, man, I've been, I read a lot of books that are outside the industry and I knew that you were going to ask me that one. Um, the first book that's more relative to the food industry and also to a better person is called Food Heroes. Um, I, Georgia Pinelli, I think is the author's name. And it's about 16 people that are um, food artisans uh, one guy was like a physicist that became a beekeeper um and it's you know it's really about the passion and the drive and really the sacrifice to follow you know to follow your passion um i said passion twice but to be you know just to follow that through. um to me i think it's it was it, it, i came away from that book at a time that i needed it. i was extremely inspired and i think that it helped allow me to think about distilling everything down and that goes back to that sort of like not trying to be the master of all, but really finding your niche and being really good at it. That's how you're going to stand out. Awesome. And what is one new technology that has you excited that you're leveraging maybe at, was that uh, Earl's? At Earl's? Yeah. You know, we don't, like, I don't rely on a lot of, on a lot of technology in the kitchen. We're not a bells and whistles person in the kitchen. What I would say for the overall operational thing, I really love, um, the cloud-based uh, POS systems. I love not having to deal with computer techs like we used to have to. So, which cloud-based POS system did your company decide to go with? We're using Revel. It's they're, you know, they were fairly new when we started off. So there's been there's been a lot of growing pains, but they have been honestly. At first, I was like, this thing sucks. They have been really adaptive and very, 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 very open-eared to make sure that they were meeting the expectations and sort of like uh, anticipating them before they happened. And they've really, I mean, you can really see them sort of hitting the next generation much better. What is it about um, Revel like, that gets you really excited about today, what they're doing? It's it's just super adaptive. Like they're like every time I turn around and go like, I wish I could do this. It's like the, the new update has it now. Um, so from from a retail point of view, um, live action, like being like really being able to do a true inventory and track it without having to go and bean count all the time um, helps out. Not so much in the back of the house, but definitely more in the retail aspect. Um, if I had more time on my hands, all of that could come into play, too, because um, it's, you know, all the little gadgets that uh, technology gadgets, I should say interface gadgets that chefs want as far as like 
recipe books and nutritional things. Like all that stuff is in there as long as you go in and use it. So you mm-hmm. can formulate, but you have to build the database and that is a lot of work. It's a, a lot, lot of work, of but it, you know, it pays off. I feel like it's like one of those things you got to do the work, yeah. you know, you got to put the work in and that's the yeah, truth yeah. of everything in life. So uh, the tools are there. Yeah, I just, you got to leverage yep. them. That's what tools are, right? Yep. They're, they don't do the work for you. They just help you do the work. Exactly. Beautiful. And with all of your knowledge, if you could go back in time, uh, give yourself one piece of advice or maybe uh, hindsight being 2020, if you could just change one thing about the path you took and that, that would put you in a better place today, what's the one thing you do differently? Man, I would say don't believe the hype. To quote public enemy. <laughs> just stay, hype. you know, yeah, just, you got to stay true to yourself, man. Don't, you know, like, Sometimes it's really easy to get caught up as as far as like chefs go. Um, it's it can it can be easy to get caught up when you start getting accolades. And I think staying grounded is important. And I'm not like I wasn't like way out there guy like trying to be Marco Pierre White, not at all. But even even somebody who's you know somewhat centered and grounded in their life can sort of buy into things at times. And I just you know stay focused. Remember why you got into it and humility and stay humble is yeah I yeah. think. Uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you short if I did. No, you didn't at all. And it's just, you know, I always say, like, I hate to say it, but I'm like, you know, just don't be an asshole. I've, yeah, I've, absolutely. I've, luckily, I've, luckily, I've never burned any bridges with people, but I would say to people that are listening, don't do that. Yeah. Because uh, Go ahead. Just, I was just going to say, you know, maintain a great community. Awesome. And, you know, what comes into my mind when I hear you say that it's just the power of writing things down and getting clear about what your mission is, what your purpose is, what your mission or your vision is in committing it to writing, because it will remind you when the hype does mm-hmm. come, you will be able to go back to those core values, to the mission, to the vision, and it will keep you humble. It will keep you focused on the work and what it is that got you there yeah. in the first place. So. I love that you, I love that you bring that up almost like every podcast. I think that's a great mantra to put on people. It's so true because, it is. It absolutely is. And there was times in my career where like, I really didn't follow that through and I didn't have a clear vision and it showed. Um, I was forced to do that. I, I do pottery. And um, when I sat down and I had to make an artist statement um, and that's, you know, sitting down and holding yourself, like writing out what you really want and then holding yourself accountable to it, I think is it, it's key. It absolutely. really does. It, it really helps keep your focus. And I think that just keeps you more streamlined. You're ready. You're more uh, agile. Awesome. Uh, this has been great, Chef. I've really, I mean, this is probably, and I mentioned it during when we were when we went to break. This is probably the least amount I'm talking I've ever done on a show, and that's not a bad thing because you're just going into the details, you're telling the story, and I'm just letting you do your thing. An hour and thirty nine minutes into this sucker, Woo! man, you're crushing it. Uh, great I advice. Tell you, tell you not beat him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, if you guys want to go, I'll let you go. I'm just here to share your story to, to allow you to share your story, and hopefully, whoever is listening to this got some nuggets uh, there are tons of nuggets in today's conversation uh before we call somebody out i do want to give you the opportunity to talk about what you're doing with order fire or sorry fire order i'm just like or, no, or, no order, order fire order fire okay yep, you got it right. <laughs> uh, so what's your mission in a, in a nutshell man we are a two-sided conversation about the culinary scene um here initially in charlotte um we are now expanding out further to include a lot more of the southeast so, and this is it's not too dissimilar from what you do, man. I sit down with, you know, a tastemaker, whether it's a chef or a farmer or a mixologist or a brewer or whatever, is something related to the food industry. And we just have like, we have a, a, a one-on-one conversation and it's back and forth. What I'm looking for with these conversations 
is the human ingredient. Mm-hmm. That's what we go for. It, it, we could be ice road truckers, right? Because people watch that. They don't watch it because they care about the trucks. They watch it because of the human story. Yep. And it's, you know, and that's really what our show is. When we first started out, we thought we'd be for chefs. And we found out that we have a community of people that come in that are maybe a little bit more food centric than some other people. But at the same time, they're coming in because it's it's a great story. Like, yeah. what's not inspiring about that? Yeah. So we do this. So we're on. You know, we have a we have a, a website. It's orderfire.tv. Um, we put out new episode every month. We put out shorts. We've got a mixologist involved now doing uh doing stuff on drinks. He's one of the one of the most reg- a, a very well regarded uh, mixologist. He was the Ritz Carlton's worldwide number one mixologist. So he's a pretty big deal. And he's a good friend of mine. Um, luckily, um, he's a great dude. Um, so, you know, that's what we're doing with that. We're, um, we do that and we raise the main thing is, I guess the one thing that we don't talk about enough with order fire. Um, so every month we do these things, um, we call them screening parties with our partners at free range brewery here in Charlotte. They generously give up their, basically their brewery for us. And, uh, we get together, we do these parties, we do the showing, taste a little food, tell some jokes and then we do this raffle um our second guest blake hartwick again my 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 good buddy um he had he was doing a dinner and he's like hey man i'm gonna raffle off uh i want to raffle off two uh two seats to my dinner so for 10 bucks we took like we only did 20 so one in 20 chance buy as many tickets and all that money went to um the charity of his choice uh community-based organization i don't like the word charity and from there like we started doing that every month and one season we raised ten thousand dollars. Wow. Basically, so every so we've raised over twenty grand now in two seasons, and all of that money, all of it, every penny of it, goes right back into the uh, the 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 community based organization of that chef's choice. So whether it's children's cancer, pit bull rescue, um, you know, farm hands, whatever whatever it is they want to do, that's where that money goes. Awesome, and I love it. That's what it's all about. And where can we find community this? brother? Where can we find us? Uh, so if we want to learn more and uh, check it out, orderfire.tv. Beautiful. All, every episode's up in the, like we're going to do on this Sunday. It'll be live probably Thursday. Cause we have a big dinner this week. And now we'll be for sure all. to link to that in the show. Let's head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash three eighty eight. And I'll have all the links to today's, uh, the, the things that were mentioned in today's show, a summary of today's discussion all right there in the show notes. And, uh, now it's time to call somebody out. So who is one person, Chef, you admire? That's how I found you. Chef Ian called you out. So who's one person you admire you think would make a great guest mentor on the show like you were for us tonight? So uh, the first person that I would say that you definitely would want to talk to, assuming you can like you can get him because he's a busy man like most chefs are, um, Joe Kindred, Joe and Katie Kindred at Kindred Restaurant in Davidson. Um, they're semifinalists for James Beard. Um They've been nation. These guys are just smart, smart, talented operators. Um, probably give you way better answers than I can They're on that me. part. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, definitely them. Um, man, if you can get Ryan Smith down at Staple House in Atlanta, I got it. I only knew him briefly when we went down for Atlanta Food and Wine, but I really, really respect um, the fuck out of what he does with food. And how he like I just liked everything about what he was doing with Hugh Aches in there when he was at um, when he was at um, Empire State South and now he's at uh, Staple House, which is a fantastic story unto itself. And Ryan's just a great dude. Like I love him, and uh, like we're not even tight friends, but he's just one of those people that really struck me as amazing. 
Um, and lastly, man, if you can get Travis uh, Croxton from uh, Rappahannock River Oysters, from the business aspect, I mean, this guy's got multiple restaurants, plus an oyster farm. Plus, I mean, on top of it, he's partnered up at Guar Bar at, uh, in Richmond, Virginia. So anybody that's involved with Guar is good in my book. All right. Joe Kindred, Ryan Smith, and Travis Cruxton. Look out, yep. guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to share your story and, and advice as guests on the show. And uh, we already gave uh, the listeners an idea of how to connect with you. Uh, head over to orderfiretv.co or dot, what was nope. it? orderfire.tv dot tv thank you for correcting me and uh this was great chef thank you so much uh eric thank you oh man you were awesome uh it was such a pleasure sharing your story and you're just a great example of of getting out there and taking risk and putting yourself in position where you're forced to grow and to learn and uh i was an honor learning from about you and your story and sharing your advice and there is no questioning chef you are unstoppable as are you my friend as are you All right. I think that might have been the longest episode I've ever published here at Restaurant Unstoppable. But, you know, he was on a roll. Uh, I think this is the, the least amount of talking I've done in any episode. And it was the longest episode. But that's cool with me because when my guests come on, they start spitting gold. Man, I'm just going to get the F out the way. Uh, this is what I want it to be all about. This is what the, the mission of the podcast is, is to give these people a platform to stand to stand on to share their story to get into detail to open up to be transparent to be genuine to be real and just make the world a better place with their experiences and their knowledge and their advice i loved it, it this this episode just got me so jacked up uh we really connected uh we're chilling out drinking beers i think you could probably hear a couple of the swigs along the way but it was totally uh whatever it's it's real uh unedited raw that's what i want this podcast to be and and that's what you got tonight so i hope you guys enjoyed it um and like always please do connect with me eric at restaurantunstoppable.com instagram and twitter at eric catchatory in slash restaurant unstoppable on facebook tell me who you want to learn from who's the mentor the restaurateur that's crushing it in your community Put them on my radar. I'll, I'll get them on the show. They'll share their story. They'll share their, their, they can share their advice with us. I'm way too jacked up right now after that interview. man. Uh, or just tell me what your challenges are. I'll get an expert on the show, and they can make us all better with their knowledge. And keep those five-star reviews on iTunes coming 103 reviews total so far. Those reviews really do validate my hard work here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Another way you can support the show is by uh, leaving a small donation. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash support. Every little bit helps, guys. Uh, Man, every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful if you do leave some support. And ultimately, the best way to support the show, the, the most ultimate compliment that i can possibly get is if you share this show with somebody aspiring to be great in the independent restaurant industry uh anybody whether they're just getting started or they they're a longtime veteran we can all learn and this podcast is for them please share this podcast please help you know change our industry let's make this thing into a movement let's teach people what can be what should be who we should be really is what we're trying to do is uh teach you who to be so you can become something great um All right, that's it for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.